chapter 3, verse 1. Even now the Lord, the Lord of hosts, deprives Judea and Jerusalem of both staff and crutch, all food supply and water supply. Judea and Jerusalem are not just ancient geographical locations, but they're also code names for latter-day entities. All names, in fact, like the name the king of Assyria. Well, yes, there was an ancient king of Assyria, but there is also a latter-day king of Assyria. Not that there is a nation called Assyria, but there will be a nation that resembles the ancient empire of Assyria. It has the same characteristics as the ancient Assyria does. So is the name Babylon a code name for a latter-day Babylon? And the name Zion a code name for a latter-day Zion? They all existed anciently, and they'll all exist again in the end time. Same with Judea and Jerusalem. These would be places where the Lord's people live today. Of both staff and crutch, all food supply and water supply. What is the staff and crutch in that case? Since it parallels those two ideas, the staff and crutch are the food supply and the water supply, right? The staff of life. But also the leadership. They're also the staff and crutch. People lean upon leaders, don't they? Leadership is actually symbolized by the staff or the shepherd's crook. Food and water are always covenant blessings, and the lack thereof are covenant curses. The righteous never go without food and without water in the book of Isaiah. They're always provided for. The wicked do. They suffer hunger and thirst. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about the wicked again. Why all this gloom and doom that we've been reading about? Why all of this negative stuff? Why are we getting an earful of that? Well, later on in the book of Isaiah, there are glorious promises that far more than offset these gloom and doom prophecies near the beginning, and these, uh, these judgmental type things. Why don't we go straight over to those? Well, we've already seen a little bit of that in chapter 2, just a little bit. Why just a small dose? Why not lots of it up front and have the gloom and doom stuff later? Because... How do we get to those glorious promises? We have to process through all the garbage first. We have to deal with all of this stuff to see how we come out of it at the end. And if we come out of it okay through the process of repentance and we've dealt with all these problems in our lives, then we inherit those glorious promises and those blessings, but not until we do that. So he has to deal with this first. Besides, this follows the pattern of humiliation before exaltation, of suffering before salvation, of ruin before rebirth. It's the pattern of the prophets. Even Jacob had to kowtow down to Esau and go through his humiliation before he was exalted as Israel's patriarch. Christ did in submitting himself to the judgments of Caiaphas and Pilate and others to uh, suffer what he did. That's the pattern. So we're into the gloom and doom for a while. The staff and the crutch, food supply and water supply, also leadership, the valiant man and soldier, the magistrate and prophet, the augur and elder, the officer and dignitary, advisors, skilled craftsmen and orators. These are the staff of society. You take those away, as the Assyrians did anciently, and what have you got? A leaderless people. Just the masses with no one to follow. These are the very framework that holds society together. These experts, these people who are qualified, this is the cross-section of society in its various fields. What is he going to do then? 
if he takes those away, how does he take them away? We know how he takes away food supply and water supply. He can bring a drought. There'll be a famine or a dearth of food. Or he can take away the rain and we'll not have water. How do we get rid of the leadership? In Isaiah, and also in history, the leadership can be eliminated, can be taken out by the enemy. Also, as society degenerates, the leadership can actually degenerate and just not be the kind of leadership that it used to be. We may still have the offices, but the people filling those offices will not be of the same caliber as we used to have in previous generations. Verse 4, I, the Lord, will make adolescents their rulers. Delinquents will lord it over them. So the people who have the most need to be led are the very ones that are doing the leading. And they're not of a great ilk. Adolescents and delinquents. People who haven't matured in their mental capacities or certainly not in their spiritual capacities. People will oppress one another, every man his neighbor. The young will be insolent to the elderly, the vile to the honorable. So we have it in the leadership and also in the masses of people in general. We have oppression. We have delinquency. Do we have these situations today? I think we have them both in the leadership and also in people themselves. It seems like this is kind of the order of the day and we can expect to see it get worse. Then will a man apprehend a kinsman of his father's house. Notice the general degeneration of the society, the general corruption and degeneration of the society. Because what we have here in verses 6 and 7 is that society eventually disintegrates to where there's no civilization anymore, no structure in society. Then will a man apprehend a kinsman of his father's house and say, You have a tunic, be our leader, and take charge of this ruination. But he will raise his hand in that day and swear, I am no physician, there is neither food nor clothing in my house, you cannot make me a leader of the people. People are here going into kind of an anarchy, a situation of chaos. They take a guy who used to be in a position of authority, he had a tunic or some kind of uniform that identified his former office, say that of a policeman or a judge, or even a mailman or a bus driver. (laughs) And he said, you have this tunic that represents your office, now take charge of this ruination. Uh, Everything is in chaos. Be our leader, you know, take charge here. And he says he won't. Instead of raising his hand like he used to do and swear allegiance or to accept his oath of office, he now just raises his hand. In fact, Isaiah doesn't even use the word hand. He leaves that out. Those words that are in italics are there to indicate what is meant, but they're not there in the Hebrew. He makes a caricature. He raises his hand and kind of repudiates his former office and says, I'm not a physician because things are sick. The whole society is sick. There is neither food nor clothing in my house, meaning that the whole society is in a situation of covenant curse. No food or clothing is a covenant curse. You cannot make me a leader of the people. Even if you did, it wouldn't do any good. Society has collapsed, in other words. Jerusalem will falter and Judea fall because their tongue and their actions are contrary to the Lord an affront to his glory before his very eyes. Now, those who falter and those who fall, or stumble and fall, is another way of saying it, are the wicked. The righteous don't stumble and don't fall. It is Babylon that falls in the book of Isaiah. 
And the fall is the fall of the whole society, like I said. Their tongue and their actions are contrary to the Lord, an affront to his glory before his very eyes. They're an offense to him, they swear, they take oaths falsely and so forth, they perjure themselves, their words are profane. An affront to his glory. It's almost like they don't care about God, they do it in spite of God. Like in chapter 1 that we read, where it says that they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They outright reject him. Before his very eyes, because they are his covenant people, so his eyes are always upon them. It's totally contrary to the Lord, and yet they are the people of God. That's a huge paradox. The look on their faces betrays them. They flaunt their sin like Sodom. Whereas before, maybe they kept things subdued or down or hidden. Now, sodomy, which is homosexuality, is flaunted openly. And it shows on their faces as well. They cannot hide it, it says. And then the proclamation of the covenant curse. Woe to their souls, not just to their bodies. They have brought disaster upon themselves. And disaster is that same word as calamity in the book of Isaiah. And it is that disaster, that calamity that happens in the day of judgment. It happens through the agency of the king of Assyria. He's the one that causes the disaster or calamity. Amidst all his gloom and doom, he nevertheless lets you know As in verse 10, Tell the righteous it shall be well with them, they shall eat the fruits of their own labors. He can't let people think that this is how it is for everybody. But he just tells you barely, and then he moves on back to the gloom and doom. I wonder how many people went out. Jeremiah is reported to have done so. Just a few here, maybe just a handful of people escaped. But the rest of the people were in this category. Tell the righteous it shall be well with them. And well, in Hebrew, is the same word as good. It shall be good for them or with them. You just can't translate it that way. Which means covenant blessing. The word disaster and calamity, I'm not sure, I don't have my Hebrew translation here. It may be the same word as evil. That would be covenant curse anyway. The woe is a covenant curse. To be well, or to be good in this case, means that you're under a situation of covenant blessing. So there we have the two contrasted conditions of the people, the wicked and their evil, and the righteous and their good. They shall eat the fruits of their own labors. In other words, they have enough to eat. Whereas a moment ago we saw in verse 7 that the others did not have food or even clothing. Their staff and crutch and food supply and water supply was taken away. It also says the fruits of their own labors. It could be actual fruit, but also probably what they have laid up for themselves. They're blessed with covenant blessings or with provision because they kept covenant with the Lord, so the Lord provides for them. Verse 11, but woe to the wicked, the opposite of the righteous. Verse 10, a covenant curse again. Woe to the wicked when calamity overtakes them. It's almost like a repeat of verse 9, isn't it? The end of verse 9 which makes this into a kind of a chiasm, A-B-A. The end of verse 9, woe to their souls, disaster, then the righteous in the middle, and then woe to the wicked, calamity. They shall be paid back for the deeds they have done. 
that will be the fruits of their labors. They have done evil deeds, so they'll be paid back. Maybe they thought they could get away with things, but it all comes back upon them in the end. Verse 12, As for my people, that is my covenant people, babes subject them, women wield authority over them. Here, women is in parallel with babes. Maybe because they're synonymous ideas. Sorry. (laughs) O my people, your leaders mislead you, abolishing your traditional ways. The traditional ways are good. They were established by true principles. They worked. And then along come these guys who try to do away with all of that and establish their own principles or lack thereof, and then everything starts to fall apart. The Lord will take a stand and contend with them. He has arisen to judge the nations. Like the judge who takes the stand, the Lord is coming out and putting these people on trial. Or he's coming out in judgment to condemn them. Then in the next verse, it says, He will bring to trial the elders of his people and their rulers. So notice another chiasm here. At the end of verse 12, we have the leaders abolishing the traditional ways, the leaders of my people, it says there. Oh, my people. That's a covenant formula. The beginning of verse 14, it has the elders of his people. His people is, again, the covenant formula. In the middle, in verse 13, we have the nations. That's an ABA chiasm, right? What does that tell you? What does that chiasm tell you? Who is he taking a stand against and contending with? Who has he arisen to judge? He has arisen to judge the leaders of his people, right? The leaders or the elders. Where? Among all nations, right? You see that chiasm there? implies that the Lord's people now, in this context in which he's talking, are where? Among all nations. He has arisen to judge the nations. But what he's really saying is he's arisen to judge the elders, right? Of his people, the leaders. He will bring to trial the elders of his people and their rulers and say to them, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. You fill your houses by depriving the needy. The vineyard in chapter 5, as we'll see in a moment, is the Lord's own people, the house of Israel. They have devoured them. How do they fill their houses by depriving the needy? How do they deprive the needy? How do you do that in government? What is big government mainly tax people for? To support and sustain itself, right? It's to pay all of their wages while they so-called administer the 10% of the money that's left, Right? How much actual government money allocated to services for the people actually reaches the people? Has anyone done a study of that? It must be only a small percentage. And the rest goes into administering that small amount of money. Anyway, that does qualify. That kind of idea always has prevailed through government, corrupt government. You fill your houses by depriving the needy, the very needy whom you should be helping, you're actually denying because of the way that government is structured. What do you mean by oppressing my people, humbling the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts? In that way they oppress the needy people and the poor. The very poor for whom supposedly they have legislated and set aside monies. Notice there the parallelism of my people with what? The poor, the poor and the needy. That forms a chiasm. The needy, 
my people the poor. Verse 15 is actually a synonymous parallelism, except for my people and the poor, which here helps to define my people as the poor. The poor and the needy, in other words, are, in a particular sense, his people. He cares for them. When the whole show is over, we'll see that those who survive, that those who are delivered and so forth, will be, for the large part, the poor and the needy. Verse 16. The Lord says, moreover, because the women of Zion are haughty and put on airs, painting their eyes, ever flirting when they walk, and clacking with their feet, and so on. Well, here we have a category of Zion. And Zion is a higher category than the Jacob-Israel category. But just as we saw how the silver turned into dross, so we can see that people who were of a Zion category don't live up to that, what they were before. Just as we saw that the city that was faithful turned into a harlot, so we see a people that were on a Zion level or approaching Zion level or aspiring to a Zion level or identifying with Zion as not living up to that level. Just like later on we'll see a category of sinners in Zion. Zion and Jerusalem is an elect category of the Lord's people. It identifies those who have repented and so forth. But here and elsewhere we see that some of those people of that category, of that level, go back and don't live up to it anymore. This is literal women. The women of Zion are haughty, or the daughters of Zion are haughty, and put on airs. And so far, Isaiah has been talking about the sins of the men, hasn't he? The injustice and the idolatry are the two main sins of the men. Their murders, injustice. The murders, they're especially among the leadership. He's already outlined a number of sins. Now he takes the women to task as well. Again, not the whole category of the Lord's people, but perhaps the majority of them, or enough of them that he has to address that. So here the women are basically painting themselves and so on and dolling themselves up to attract and entice the men, right? And so the very thing that they try to do goes back on them. He says in verse 17, The Lord will afflict the scalps of the women of Zion with baldness. The Lord will expose their private parts. Whereas they were making themselves attractive and maybe exposing themselves somewhat, now they will be doing so ad nauseum. Baldness is a covenant curse, and to have insufficient clothes is a covenant curse. And food, is that funny? (laughs) Put your cap on quick. (laughs) I'm only half bald myself. Okay, so... Verse 18, In that day the Lord will strip away their finery. And then it just goes into a whole list of things. The anklets, head ornaments and crescents, the pendants, chains and scarves, tiaras, bracelets, ribbons, zodiac signs, charm, amulets, rings for the fingers, for the ears, the elegant dress, the shawl, the kerchief, the purse, hosiery, shirlin, and millinery cloaks. Why does he go to such extreme lengths there? Why doesn't he just say a few of these things? that are typical, rather than just giving us the whole list. It's because he wants to make the point how they have overdone what they're doing. Their makeup and their finery and their attire is overdone. Verse 24, And instead of perfume there shall be a stench, instead of the girdle a piece of twine, instead of the kofir baldness, 
Instead of the festive dress, a loincloth of burlap. For in place of beauty there shall be ignominy. Ignominy is shame or embarrassment or humiliation. So we see that those very things that they try to do kind of turn back on them. What goes around comes around, right? In much worse dosages than they were prepared for. All those things imply covenant curse, stench, meaning they're not able to bathe themselves. They'll be in a situation of extreme deprivation. A piece of twine instead of a girdle. They don't even have proper clothes to wear. Baldness, whether from nuclear fallout or from some other cause, whatever it may be. Burlap, that implies, that's the kind of clothing that's worn by those who mourn, those instead of mourning or fasting for the sins of the people, as Isaiah does later. Now they'll be forced into that situation because they didn't repent and mourn in time. In place of beauty there shall be ignominy. Your men shall be felled by the sword. The men too, he wants to let you know he's not male chauvinist here. Your men shall be felled by the sword because it said earlier on that if you're unwilling and you disobey, you shall be eaten by the sword. Chapter 1, verse 20. The sword is the king of Assyria himself, or he's the instrument of destruction for the men. And he's the one that also causes this general misery for the women. Because the women obviously have no one to provide for them or to protect them at this point. Your might shall be overthrown in war. Her gateways shall lie bereaved and forlorn. She shall sit on the ground destitute. Sitting on the ground is a situation of mourning. And mourning and destitution because her husband is gone and is not providing for her. Now her gateways identifies a single woman. It's the woman Israel, the woman who did not repent in time. It's not the woman Zion. Gateways bereaved and forlorn also means that there is no traffic back and forth. No one is passing through the land. The land is desolated. The destruction has happened and everybody just stays put. And if you don't have your storage or if you don't go in the exodus, you'll be without.